it's Tony Chapman, and welcome to Chatter That Matters. In this age of noise, I cut through the chaos and the confusion to focus on what matters most to your life, your career, your community, and our planet. At the beginning of every podcast, I ask an essential question, and then together, we go on a quest to mine for insights and identify the big ideas that will help you get to where you need to go. I have a tough question today, one very dear to my heart, and that is, can small business survive? I mean, even before the coronavirus arrived, we were dealing with forces of change that were rendering much of what we know about business obsolete. Automation, e-commerce, the Amazon effect, data, bureaucracy, taxation, landlords, all of this combining to a customer that was also saying, we want more and less, more personalized solutions, more of what matters to me, but I want it with less friction, less effort, and less cost. Margins were being squeezed, and there was just no middle ground or status quo. And then this virus shows up, a sledgehammer looking to shut business down. So what do you do? We have two choices. You either make things happen, reinvent, reimagine, or wonder what happened. And it reminded me of a scene from Apollo 13. You remember that movie where they're trying to get the spaceship back to Earth? The, the concept of landing on the moon is being aborted, and they're doing everything they can. And as they're heading back, they realize their carbon dioxide filters are failing. And they show up in front of Kranz, who's kind of quarterbacking the team, and explaining the situation. And Kranz says, well, what do we have on the spaceship that's good? What can we do to reinvent and make some kind of filters? And he says, gentlemen, you better find a way to put a square peg in a round hole. And that's kind of the entrepreneurial spirit, the essence of it, that the great entrepreneurs just find a way to constantly rethink the problem. So I wanted to find a company that in the middle of all of this, backs to the wall, that, that the sudden change, the door that's been slammed, is approaching this with the kind of attitude I think we all need in this marketplace. Joining me today in my podcast is John Bazir. He's the president of Powerhouse Retail Services. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tony. It's great to be here. So tell me a little bit about your business. Uh, so we've been servicing the uh, apparel and garment industry in Canada with uh, last mile services, if you want to call it that. We're a 3PL fully functional pick pack um, distribution center. We've got a 165,000 square feet and growing now. And uh, we also have 200 plus reps, depending on the season, across Canada that uh, basically go into stores and do the visual mer- merchandising piece for, for the apparel industry too. So the kind of stores you would work on would be like department stores, specialty retail? Uh, we do a mix of both. Um, it really depends on the needs of our clients, but predominantly uh, on the merchandising side, obviously the Bay is, is um, a big customer of ours. And on the shipping side, we, we ship ev- everything uh, big box down to small independents. So you're dealing with retail, and I would say that many companies, many investors have kind of been running away from traditional retail because of the growth of e-commerce, but you found a way to carve out a niche. What, what, what made you stand out in this marketplace that said, we're still viable, we're still relevant, even if this category is softening, we still have a core business? I think um, it's got a lot to do with uh, the spirit of our company and our people. We, 
um, really go about it with a lot of passion. And we've been, you know, we've our business has grown by word of mouth and, and we are humbled by our client list. We really do service, you know, some of the best known brands and names on the globe. And um, I think, you know, consistent execution, uh, you know, we deliver on our promises as much as we can and we go at it um, really, like I said, with a lot of heart and a lot of vigor. And, and I think our customers appreciate that. Now, when we were talking earlier, you joined the company, I think, in 2011. And I would have to, you brought in quite a bit of innovation. And, and the thing you're most proud about, I guess, is sort of the, the dashboard and the technology that helps clients get a sense of what's happening. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think I think too it was it was um, it was a natural progression. We've for a small company, we've always been extremely, I would say, ahead of the curve in technology for our size, um, and that was predicated by our founders, who you know are very tech, I guess, centered. Um, so really, just continued from that same logic. But what we have now is is a uh, fantastic piece of uh, software that. We run our entire merchandising business on. It's um, in test mode now. It's completely paperless. Um, we, we can get a live feed of what our reps are doing in store. So we have the ability to give retailers and our customers sight lines, uh, you know, through piecework too, um, across multiple locations in Canada. I'm talking with John Bazir, who's the president of Powerhouse Retail Services, and we're looking a little bit about his business. And you were going into 2020 quite optimistic that you were really setting this business up for continued growth. Yeah, <laughs> were. Um, we just went through the uh, largest expansion uh, in our company's history on the warehousing side, a um, new 100,000 square feet state-of-the-art facility. And... Um, then we ran into the coronavirus, um, but, you know, the pipeline was thick. Um, we were reaching new efficiencies and everything was looking great. Um, and that was up until about two weeks ago. So tell me, take me through as an entrepreneur when you start, because obviously you're bringing in brands from China as well. You must have had your radar at least set on what was happening over there, but it, it, it must still come as a shock when it, 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 it becomes like a tsunami. It just hits you so hard. You haven't got time to sort of batten down the hatches. Yeah, I, I think probably everyone's in the same boat. We, you know, everyone looked to China and went, you know, th- that's uh, that's a sad state of affairs. But I don't, I don't think anyone really stopped and said that's coming and it's going to hit me uh, with full force as quickly as it did. Um, you know, I was probably in that camp myself. Um, but we definitely looked at it and and made some preparations. Uh, we we do. Well, as we speak, we're um, shipping frontline medical supplies to our healthcare workers, um, and we weren't doing that a few months ago. So, you know, a lot of what we do and what I do, you know, we could have sat back on our hands uh, with the pipeline full and uh, the expansion in place. Uh, we could have just waited for our growth to come to us, but uh, we got out there and hustled and, and filled up any space we had with a medical supplies company. You know, I wish I could tell you that it was by design, um, but you know what we did do was um, not rest on our laurels and went out and looked for a different product item that we thought was relevant. And uh, it just so happens that you know it's probably the most in-demand product uh, on the globe right now. So when you look at your business and you're you're in the business of distribution, um, 
anything's possible then the idea is and what can i what can i deliver to the people that need it most versus i'm just going to stick to my coordinating which is i was very good at sending apparel into stores and merchandising correct i mean we we have the the software the team uh, and the ability to to ship anything so we it, it forced us to to look at our business and okay, okay we've got this skill set and what can we do with it so um, you know we're aggressively looking for opportunities all the time I mean, and brainstorming, we even thought about, you know, what food are, are people going to be able to afford in this environment, you know, and we're looking at, you know, ramen, ramen noodles and noodle bowls and stuff and, you know, willing to take a container of those and ship those uh, kind of products to, you know, in-need people across Canada as well. So, we're, you know, um, I like to say we think outside the box, but sometimes you can't even have a box and we're approaching our entire business that way and doing whatever we can to to build a bridge, to be honest, Tony. Um, the, the uncertainty right now is the well, no one knows how long that bridge has got to be, but um, we know with the brands that we service that they're going to be around no matter what. Uh, there's going to be a demand for their products uh, once this washes through. And um, so we've got to make sure that we put things in place so that we're ready to ramp up and execute the services that our customers, uh, you know, have been used, getting used to for the last 25 years. Before we get to that, I want to spend a little bit of time on suddenly this changing priorities. As a CEO, it sounds like you're the, the person that imagines the possibilities and the outcomes. But when something like this hits, you've also got to get right into your plumbing and figure out, you know, what do I have on the spaceship that's good? I mean, you got to look at your cash flow. You've got to look at your expenses. You've got to look at your uh, landlords, your leases. So how do, how do you prioritize between the two so that you've got time to think about the chess move to build my business, but at the same time you're setting up defense to protect your king? I, I think that's a great point. Um, I think what we did is – to, to be frank, we looked at it and, and go and went, well, what's the worst case scenario? And, uh, you know, uh, like life, death, maybe the worst case scenario for you. And, and then we went, okay, well, what can we do to, to dodge as many bullets as we can um, to make sure that that doesn't happen? So we, did we prioritize anything? No, I think we, we more fired a shotgun and understood everyone that had a stake in our company and addressed every single one of them. And that was our approach. So I have to imagine that some of that was tough conversations because people that really believed in you and saw the shining eyes and a company growing, um, you suddenly had to say, hey, we're, gonna, we're not going to necessarily turn the lights off, but we're going to dim them. So how, how do you manage that as a CEO to have those conversations with the people that you know would have uh, run over hot coals for you? Um, for me, um yeah, we're such a people-focused uh, company and, and they really are, truly are the heart of what we do. Um, you know, anyone that says that business isn't personal um, isn't my friend because business is people and, and that's how we run our organisation. But you know what? I think for me it's about being vulnerable um, and just just going about it in an honest and transparent way uh, and, and making sure that you communicate or even over-communicate in these circumstances uh, to make sure that your team fully understands, you know, the levity of what's going on, um, but also give them that piece of confidence and hope that you do have a plan and uh, you can't wait to bring them back. Um, so, 
yeah, I think being transparent and, you know, leading through empathy uh, in my case, um, it's the only way I know how to do it and, and that's what I've done. And um, I've been humbled by, you know, our great team who are already making sacrifices um, uh, for the team that's back and building the bridge to the future. When I deal with leaders and great leaders sort of operate head, heart and hands, they, they, they easy to understand. They're very strategic. They have a powerful heart and they have a bias for action. And I'm liking what I'm hearing from you and all three of them. But at times when you have that real empathy, you can also be taken advantage of when you're lining up in front of people that don't necessarily work for you. Let's say your suppliers, your landlords, your banking. What kind of approach do you bring to them so that they buy in that you're actually going to build a bridge to the future versus them saying, you know what, I might be better off right now abandoning the ship and collecting whatever I can from it? Yeah, I I think... um you know, if death, if death, like I say death, but if you're looking, if you're staring death in the face, um, it takes away all the fear. And I think it really clears the road for you to move forward with confidence. Um, you know, moving through with empathy doesn't mean you can't be assertive uh, where you need to be and communicate your story in a way that's clear, uh, is fiscally responsible and map out a plan. You know, there's... I think probably a lot of companies sitting back and going and maybe even waiting for things to wash through and hoping that they'll survive. But um, we've really taken the approach, like I said, that we we can't control what's going on outside our walls, um, but we're going to make damn sure that we make every effort to control what we can on inside our walls. And and that includes all the key stakeholders in our business. So, you know, we, we lined up, uh, meetings with our landlords, with our banks weeks ago, and they kind of laughed at us and said, "Are oh, you jumping the gun a bit here?" And I said, "You know, well, we don't think we are. Um, we think this is serious, and we want to be first in the queue because we know what's coming, and we know that uh, you're going to be having a lot of these meetings. So we want to express our story as soon as we can, and we want to know where we stand with all our key stakeholders so that we can adjust." Uh, our plan and our strategy accordingly. So have you had any of those tough meetings yet with landlords? Uh, I've got a couple coming up tomorrow um, and we've we've sent them in advance our um, <laughs> multiple page uh, plan and fiscal plan based on different scenarios and uh, different information. Um, but what we're saying is that it's changing daily and I think, again, we're going through with transparency and saying, Whatever, whatever help we can get from wherever it's going to come, we're going to adjust our plan accordingly and we're in the business of paying our way. We don't want charity. Um, we never have for 25 years and we don't want to start now. But the, we do definitely need some help uh, in the short term to get through this and uh, we know we've got a good story to come out the other side and, and be a successful growing business like we were. You know, I went through that many years ago where uh, a company had sold to a British firm went bankrupt and took, was taking everything down. We were a very viable business. And I remember those conversations with landlords and bankers and how I had to really, my strategy was to divide to conquer because if they all felt like everybody was jumping in, there was no hope. There was just going to be a, a, you know, a, a feeding fest for whatever they could get hold of. 
And I remember talking to the landlord and they came in and they were, you know, very knowing that they had the position, they could walk you out and your business, my business, we're all dependent on having space. I was in the advertising business, lots of equipment, people working there. You're in the distribution business. And what I found with, in chatting with that landlord was I wanted to take away their power, but not in an aggressive way, but in a very empathetic way. I wanted to let them know how good of a tenant we've been, how energetic we make their building because there's a lot of young people, how many people's livelihood depend on it, and that they're going to have to do their part to keep it going. It wasn't just simply a transaction deal. I was very confident knowing they wouldn't get a tenant overnight. We had a unique space, unique buildup. And I think the same thing holds true to you. As you're going to go into those meetings tomorrow, don't surrender the power to the landlord because they you feel they have the switch for life or death. I think you go in there going, they need space. They're in the business of renting space. An empty warehouse is not uh, a thing that they want to have. And they, they trust you along the way. And they know that you've got a very smart plan. And... I would, would not be afraid of asking them to take a haircut for the next couple of months, as opposed to even, even uh, you know, defraying some of the, uh, the rent, because I think that you are, they want to be helping you get to where you want to go. And if that landlord feels it's that way, and they feel they're part of that transformation, you're going to have a lot of success. If it's just transactional, that landlord is going to very quickly find themselves dealing with, uh, dealing with their own mortgages and uh, nobody to fill that warehouse. So I, that's going to be a tough meeting, but I, I'm confident that, you know, my best advice to you is to always take the sense of we are in it together versus feeling that you're submissive because they happen to have the keys to the lock in your front door. Yeah. I think that's some great advice. And um, yeah, we're, we're really going to the table and um, like I said, with a plan and, and we're not looking for charity. And I think, you know, if you if you go into your landlord looking for charity, as opposed to going to them with a strong story um, and a plan to even pay it back, if you're in that position, right, is to amortize what they're going to save you over the next few months, over the remainder of your lease. After that, um, there's a lot of creative solutions that that are out there if you think outside the box. And um, but I think you're absolutely spot on, um, making them part of the solution is the way you've got to go um, because they're, they're big organisations and, you know, they, they've got their own problems. We're, we're all in this together. It's going to be a little bit like dominoes if this uh, extends, you know, through two, three, four months. Who knows what's going to be at the end? But, um, you know, they could be facing, you know, a 40, 40% vacancy very quickly too in these some of these big commercial real estate agents. So, um yeah, it's gonna. It's interesting times. Like I said, we're we, uh, we're putting a plan in place. We're executing on it, and we feel that's that's all we can do at this point in time. I don't want to belabor the the, the uh, landlord, nor do I want to feel that you'd be imputative. But I would. You're just striking me as a win-win guy that wants to be, you know, and just go in there, you know, asking for a break in rent for the next couple of months before before you ever offer. We can pay it back later on. Just, you know, you don't have to give everything away right away in your negotiation because, because you know, here's the thing that you are, you know, if not, this landlord, whether he's told or not, is going to realize if you go out of business, somebody buys your assets and goes back to that landlord, that next lease might be 25 cents of the dollar. Right. And so it's important that, you know, keeping this business happening is a win-win but they're going to have to do the same sacrifices that you're doing. And, uh, and I think that that, 
that's the magic. And I think it's the same attitude with the banks. I mean, they're going to look at your business and go, this isn't, a, this isn't our biggest problem. And, um, I, you know, the fact that you've got so many different scenarios and you're so strategic in your approach is going to be reassuring to the bank that they're just not, you know, throwing a fire hose of money at you. They're actually, it's, it's a very strategic partnership. I want to talk a little bit though now. So as you start getting your business set up for coming out of this, and we will come out of this, tell me what you've learned about this experience that might change how you go forward in the future. Uh, yeah, I, I think, yeah, the, I mean, as a, as a CEO and running a company, you're, I think it's your job to always look at, you know, how to hedge um, any situation. Um, I've never experienced anything like this. And, uh, you know, we've gone through uh, a lot of, you know, being 25 years old, we've, we've weathered a, a lot of storms. Uh, but for me, it's, it's, it's can we diversify? Um, don't step more than, you know, if you can, not more than one step away from your core competencies, but utilise those competencies to, you know, spread yourself into maybe uh, another industry or another product line or, uh, you know, maybe in our instance, you know, there's there's products even in this market that are thriving and doing great. So, you know, do we need to balance our portfolio of customers uh, instead of being such a niche provider? Um, you know, it's something that we've got to look seriously at moving forward um, and probably will. I think it's such great, great uh, insight you're having because you're not in the you know, apparel merchandise business, you're in the supply chain business and where there's a need for supply. I mean, there's not a military campaign that's ever been won without a credible supply chain. And I think the, uh, even just the fact that you're seeing some, you know, a breath of fresh air, it's certainly not paying all the bills, but it's helping a little bit with your whole medical equipment says to me that there's a, there's a lot more you should be thinking about these great efficiencies, having lots of brands showing up at the same store and having, a focused effort, but I think you're right. I mean, there's some diversification makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think too, what we've learned is that um, you know, I would say for anyone that's in the business, 3PL of apparel and garments is probably one of the toughest to do. Uh, it's on demand. It's uh, high energy. It's it's extremely demanding. And um, you know, just through even working with these medical supplies company who are experiencing uh, volumes and shipping that they wouldn't normally experience you know, in this climate, um, we can't believe how easy it is uh, compared to what we do day to day. So, you know, um, that was a, a great moment for us to go, you know what, we're, we're running, running hard for our customers here and we, we enjoy what we do, but there are other products out there, there are other businesses out there and um, that are far easier to ship and, and distribute than what we do right now. The one thing I would caution you on that is the more it becomes transactional, which is just the the more you could be very quickly in a commoditized situation if someone else decides, like an Amazon, well, I can ship that stuff. Right. Versus what I think you do really well on top of it, maybe maybe it's your margins, your pricing, or your, the value of the clients is you're representing their brands at retail. So now you're not just a supply chain. When they when one of your the brands goes, you know, one of the owners of the brands or the designers goes in and says, I like the way my product is merchandised at that store. I mean, that's something that's quite a unique skill. I mean, it's a combination of both supply chain and the window dressing. Yeah, I think for sure, especially on the visual merchandising side, we've, um, it, it's not, it's a very, it's a highly skilled uh, merchandising. It's not, anyone can put a, a bottle of Pepsi on a shelf, but, 
you know, to work with brands like, you know, Levi's and Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger and, and bring to life the articulate and detailed visual merchandising and standards that they expect, it's, it's not easy and it requires, you know, a fantastic team of uh, passionate people who, who are really, you know, proud of what they do in the apparel and fashion industry. And um, like you said, it, it's not commoditized, it is specialized. And, and I think that's why it's a very, no one's really broken into our niche. There's, there's a few, there's a few players in our, in our um, space. And, um, you know, we all pretty play pretty nicely in the sandpit, but um, everyone that's tried to come in, like there's some big merchandising companies across the world that have tried to enter this space. Uh, it's it's not easy to get into because it's it's simply not an easy business to execute and get right for your customer. So, John, the the, the, the bridge to the future. What have you learned about yourself as a leader that you can share with others in terms of? Uh, how you uh, how you're standing up to this task? What do you like about what you're seeing, and what do you think you need to improve on? I oh man, that's a good question. <laughs> I you know what I, I I try to I'm still sleeping pretty well at night. Um, I, I think it's just about being really disciplined and, and proactive. Um, I've I've got the you know benefit and history of being a um, international athlete uh, in competition, and I think. Just some of the simple sports psychology that I learned over time, how to narrow focus, how to stay in the moment, uh, how to appreciate uh, even even your breath. Um, I think mental health and being able to stay in the moment and be calm and measured in these situations um, just has so much effect on how you can deal with this and plan for the future. Um, because it's very easy to let panic panic set in and feel and feel helpless and and let it override, um, you know what would normally be just a normal day at work for you. It's very easy to get let, let those emotions run rife. So um, I think being able to control those emotions um, and communicate clearly with my team and move forward with a plan, um, I, I'm proud of that. Uh, I just wish I had some deeper pockets and. Uh, and and it would it would be a lot easier, but um, you know I don't think it, this is easy for anybody, and everyone's in this together. And I, I really I really hope that um, we see humanity come back to the fold more than it ever has, and because uh, it's going to be all of us together getting through this. And the sooner we all realise that, the better it's going to be for everyone. So I've been talking to John Vizier. He's with Powerhouse Retail Services, and I always end my podcast with three things I've learned today, and I'm going to actually come back to what I talked earlier about, which is head, heart, and hands. And the first thing I learned about with John that I think is a lesson for all of us is scenario planning. Don't just uh, go in there with one thought and think that that's going to happen, but plan a variety of different scenarios, anticipate how people are going to react to them, and be prepared to course correct and course adjust. And I really like that part of the, the head. The heart, which is something that I the first time I met John uh, and continue to be so blown away with this, how much empathy, humility, generosity, and how you certainly make your employees the heroes of the story, the the way you talk about your clients and stuff. So the sense of humanity that you just talked about, I think is also something that pours through you. But the final thing that I love about what we should be learning from, from you is the sense of the hands. Instead of panicking and getting reactive and and, and making the sand beneath you shift even more, 
What John talked about was the importance of staying in the moment, measured, focused, narrow your focus, focus on what matters most. John Vizier, Powerhouse Retail Services, thank you so much for joining Chatter That Matters today. Thanks, Tony. It was a pleasure being here, mate. That's great. Thank you. You've been listening to Chatter That Matters. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can connect with Tony on Twitter at Tony Chapman, through LinkedIn at Tony Chapman Reactions, or visit his website, TonyChapmanReactions.com. Chatter That Matters is produced by Tony Chapman Reactions and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford.